Welcome to Government CIO's Agile Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, William Drew, and I have in the studios today, Andrew Underhill, Chief Technology Officer at Government CIO. Government CIO is on the forefront of transforming the federal IT landscape using Agile practices and principles. But it's not only the application of Agile and DevOps principles, but also the introduction of innovative approaches using DevOps. Government CIO has invested heavily in their internal labs in order to prototype technologies, build expertise with key tools and application, and foster new ideas and initiatives across the company. To understand more about these innovative initiatives, as well as what's happening inside the GCIO labs, we've asked Andrew Underhill, Chief Technology Officer for Government CIO, to join us for a session of the Agile Advocate podcast. Andrew brings real-world experience and expertise in software engineering and hands-on product development. He works across the client portfolio to understand their challenges and introduce technological innovation where and when it's appropriate in order to improve quality and velocity and maximize value to our clients. Welcome. Thank you, Bill. Very nice to be here. Let me say thank you very much for your time. I look at your schedule and I get tired. I have to take a knee. I know that you're a busy guy, so I appreciate you coming down and participating in the podcast. So, you're a CTO. The government CIO? Yes, correct. Give me a little background on how you got there. How did I get here? Yes. So my whole thing is entrepreneurial in nature. I started off as a software developer. Uh, I was very lucky to work for a small entrepreneurial outfit back in the UK. And they were in a place where they had a lot of legacy technologies. It was a government contractor in the UK. And I very quickly moved from fixing the old legacy green screen systems through innovation to deploying probably what was the first web-based healthcare application, certainly in the UK. You know, I like to think the world, but I'm sure there's some people that would uh, stake that claim as well. So, you know, through innovation, I feel that people see that innovation orchestrates change a lot of the time, and that has enabled me to be very successful in the government space, in both in Europe and in the US. And I guess some people would say that I'm CTO because I'm the last man standing, but, you know, I would hope it's because of that entrepreneurial spirit and the ability to innovate and get client buy-in to the innovations through really understanding their business and how technology can help their business rather than just developing a shiny new toy and then looking for a place in the market for mm. that toy that you've just built. So that's where you see your role as CTO at Government CIO? Absolutely. It's fusing that business understanding, health IT understanding with technology and pushing those ideas out throughout the organization so that we deliver a consistent message to our client. So government CIO is all about transforming government IT and federal IT. In fact, that's the mantra, right? Transforming federal IT. Where do you see GCIO doing that right now? What's the best example of doing it? Well, the, the best example is with the Department of Veterans Affairs. So we engaged with the VA probably four or five years ago to help them down the, the journey from waterfall methodologies to agile frameworks. We've been very successful in doing that as an organization. The contract has grown year on year. We've not only transformed the software development lifecycle at VA and helping them move away from the very structured procedures that were in place that were very heavy upfront effort in terms of planning and requirements development to an agile uh, software development lifecycle. And that has really 
enabled the VA to, from an IT perspective, to be a lot more flexible in their delivery approach. They're delivering software product now every three months instead of every six months or 12 months that was happening before. And it's led to a reorganization of the whole IT ecosystem. So do you uh, see the organization changing? Absolutely. Rather than just the way they do things, it's absolutely, the absolutely, it's organizational now. And in fact, the VA is now moving towards safe, the uh, scaled agile framework to further support that organizational change. They've become very agile at project and team levels, and they're now looking to support the organizational change through the safe framework to allow the product-based view of projects within the health portfolio and the benefits portfolios uh, within the VA. So GCIO does a lot of mentoring, coaching, guiding with Agile at the VA. How many projects are we looking at? Dozens, a hundred, I've heard? Well, it's certainly over a hundred. Yeah. It started off two or three initially, and like I say, it's grown throughout the years. So there are over 100 projects. We're not working 100 projects at one time, right? but certainly that's what we've touched on through the years. And they're um, all different types and kinds and scope of these projects, right? Right, right. And that's uh, what I really like about it because what you've got is the ability to not just say, okay, here's a cookie cutter approach that we do these. Much like the corporate executive board goes out and gets best practices across the corporations in a particular domain, GCIO can talk about best practices gathered from an incredible array, of breadth and depth of these projects. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And that, that goes back to the original question, you know, what am I doing as CTO, oh. really? It's doing exactly that. It's bringing different perspectives and understanding from different industries to delivery ecosystem. And, you know, that is what's happening at the VA, those best practices from GSA. We have contracts there assessing maturity of the Agile frameworks and DevOps environments. Oh, we'll talk about that. Trust me. Absolutely. Yes. So to answer your question, we are doing multiple things. You know, we still have some projects that are in the early life cycle of change and transformation. So in that environment, we're really coaching. You know, we're coaching the government contractors and the government employees in terms of what they can do with Agile and how they need to adapt as an organizational entity, as well as how the contractor community needs to work with that adapted organizational entity. And that's process, tools, culture, people, obviously. And then you've got the more mature projects where we've moved into an assessment capability. So we're providing governance and oversight on those programs and scoring their agile maturity and then offering help where there are gaps. That's great because I love the idea. Measurement's painful, but got to do it. It's amazing how many people and organizations will tell you that we're really mature, we're really looking great. And then an objective viewpoint, which GCI provides, but it's a real truth because a lot of times it can be either gamed or just misunderstood about, you know, you're in a bubble. So how can oh, you see out of that? Absolutely. And in fact, I'd argue that we should be making decisions based on evidence these days, not gut feeling, not following a particular process. So, you know, with the tools and frameworks that are out there that support agile process, uh, it really does give you the evidence to make educated decisions in real time based on the evidence that's there. There's a lot less planning that's needed, a lot more reactive to what's currently happening. You know, how many bugs are out there? How many bugs are out there that are affecting how many users? They're the really important things that we can apply resources to 
almost immediately because of the agile practice that VA is now adopting. So what do you think is the biggest challenge of the VA and you doing this transformation? Well, I think that it's organizational in, in, Cultural? in nature. Right, absolutely, yeah. culture within the organization. Yeah. And then um, even when the culture's there, the organization still needs to adapt to embrace the agility that Agile and SAFE offers. Yeah. There is a lot of resistance to change, and it's not necessarily something that people are doing on purpose, but people are used to working a particular way because it works for them. You know, they feel comfortable in following the methodologies that have worked yeah, it's reasonable. for them for Human years. Human nature, yeah. Right, right, absolutely. So if you understand their business and then offer up some real-world proven examples of how an organization can operate differently, I've found that people do really embrace those ideas once they understand what the goals are. You offer some um, near return on investment because it is an investment on their part as well as our part. Yeah, it's amazing how many messages are put out by management on the executive suite. They feel like it's the message. It was pretty clear. You should all follow it. Instead of having a clear, consistent message along with Mm -hmm. keeping it consistent often and allow people to understand where they fit. One of the things I saw, and I see it may just, not just in federal IT, but especially in operations, you look at operations and he's like, we're going to do DevOps. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, that's great. Mm-hmm. And I've got a job to do too. Instead of telling him why, how he fits in, where that person's going to be, taking him where he's at, where he's going to be and allow me to connect the dots. If I can't do that, then I don't understand how I'm going to get there. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think we've seen that happen. You know, one of our large programs at the moment that's making some really great headway is supporting, again, the Department of Veterans Affairs Financial Services. They support all of the insurance type activities that the department has. So there are hundreds of thousands of transactions a day going in and out of the Department of Veterans Affairs. What's the money that goes through there that's managed? It's an Uh, incredible amount. Yes, it's in the billions. Yeah. Um, we, the Veterans Service Network feeds Treasury approximately $9 billion worth of transactions each month. That's a lot. So now we get to talk about DevOps, your favorite subject, or at least my favorite subject. <laughs> so you know one of the things I want to do, whenever I hear somebody say DevOps, and of course they want to produce DevSecOps or whatever, We'll just keep it at DevOps because it's simpler for me. But I always want to do is put a definition out, even if it's not as complete and all agree on it, just so we know what we're talking about. So I'm going to go ahead and throw one out here, okay? I'm cheating here. It's a set of practices, policies, and principles that combine software development and operational expertise in order to continually deliver high-quality capabilities to the end user while maintaining a strong security posture. Wow. How about that one? But really what it comes down to, putting multidisciplinary teams together and getting them product-focused and whatever it takes, I need that on my team to get that done from ideation all the way to production. And you own the product. You don't own doing development and then throwing it over the transom and hoping testing understands what you're going to do and then throwing it over to operations and they complain they don't have enough knowledge of what it's due, they just let it go, whatever, right? And they have to own that. Owning that product and be able to go through iterations through that pipeline and get real value to your end customer, that's what DevOps is about. Absolutely. So what do you think about 
overall, and you've seen a lot of different agencies in the federal government, where do you think they are in just having a clear understanding of that or a consistent understanding of that? Well, I don't think everybody has the same understanding, obviously. You know, that's why you had to define it, <laughs> and you like to define it. You talk to project teams that are two or three people in size, and they believe they've been doing DevOps for years. Yes, okay. I've seen that, yes. You talk to some executives, and they understand they're doing DevOps. Or at least they've they've told had, they told everybody to do had, DevOps. They've told, and they maybe heard the message that they're doing yeah. DevOps, yeah. right? And, you know, really, I feel they are doing DevOps. There's just different definitions of it. So to go back to your definition. <laughs> oh, okay. And that's true. And one of the most valuable things I think you can bring to any of these projects, as boring as it sounds, mm -hmm. is a reference model. And what it allows you to do is it gives everybody the same, we're speaking from the same Bible. We're in the same definitions. Even if you don't like the definitions, yeah. change them so it's a common language that we're all speaking from. Absolutely. Like deployment, yeah. delivery, release candidate, all mm -hmm. of those things mm -hmm. conjure up different things in people's minds. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the activities that we're doing to help support that is um, rolling out design patterns. You know, and design patterns uh, have been used for many years, obviously, in supporting a standardized architecture. But really, a design pattern doesn't need to be necessarily an architectural diagram. It can be a process or a framework for delivery. And if you can train the organization to practice DevOps to the design pattern of DevOps that meets your organization, then that obviously helps with the maturation and measurement of DevOps throughout all of your teams at the different levels of the organization. Today, I don't know whether any agency has fully defined DevOps as you did and supported that with implementation guides and playbooks or design patterns so that it is consistently adopted throughout the organization. And one of the things that we've done, as we did with Agile, and we've talked about already, is provide the coaching and assessment of the maturity and the support ecosystem around those And you uh, get the, do you get that up front? So you get that coaching up front? Yes. Like for when I say yeah. up front, like before we get down the road too loud and we define something as a project, we now know before we even start what is expected of them. Absolutely. Yeah. And these, the design patterns or artifacts would come from that early engagement Right. So, because that's one of the problems. Mm -hmm. It's not a team. It's not a tool. It's not some kind of magic thing we do. It's really a cultural change. And if you don't get that from a top, then you have some serious mm -hmm. issues. Yeah. So yeah. if you look, there was a really good memo from Bill James and the VA. It was spot on. Because what it did is it said, we're not just going to say DevOps, and we're not gonna just go out to vendors who all say they have DevOps in a box. But what this really means is, it's a change for you. Change for you in operations, a change for you in tests, a change for you in security. It means we're not gonna be project oriented anymore, we're gonna be product. And a product into my end user's hands Mm -hmm. over and over and over again till we iterate to what they want, and even beyond that. So we're gonna own and live a product. There's a lot of, I think, some criticism on the side. It's like, well, I don't see an implementation plan. That's not what it was. It was that message we talked about just before. It was about, I want you guys to understand this is where we're going to go. And this is the value 
proposition is going to start coming down from here that says this is why we're doing mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely critical. Yeah. When I worked in the UK, I was with a product company. We were building product, and I do see a lot of that product management. The way that products are managed and delivered, you know, there's a marketing element, there's a discovery element, there's a lot of elements that are missing from a project plan for software development in an SDLC. And I think that DevOps does offer us, together with the safe framework in the larger organizations, does mm. offer a fantastic opportunity to start introducing some of those product management and product development techniques. We're, we've seen um, user experience come to a forefront through the last couple of years. And that's really just one attribute of product development that needs to be incorporated in software development. Yeah, so I come from a product background too. There you go. So there's lots of, my customer is God, and I have mm -hmm. to also deal with my competitors, my technology environment, my costs, economics, all those things that go into it. Mm -hmm. There's some things that don't make sense in that or have kind of a little twisted in uh, federal IT, but making that customer the number one priority and removing those differences between, or at least the degrees of separation between you and that customer is really key. That's a hard thing to do, though, because in many organizations, we're talking about personalities that may not mesh, but what it comes down to is teaching that product owner and that product manager, the only reason they exist is to service that customer. Yeah, I think it is hard, but it's not rocket science either. You know, that term's over It's a, it's a, a people it's, science, it's, which makes it even harder. <laughs> I don't know. It, you can, an abstract level, it's a simple thing in my mind. You know, it's getting everybody on the same page and just walking them through the steps and giving them the support infrastructure to enable them to be successful. And that includes many attributes of product development and integrated development and operations teams as important as integrated development and user experience oh, teams. Yeah, in, in fact, in I would mind. say that's you know. the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is when you think about it, what do I have to gain as an operations guy, right? I get paid for reliability, stability, all those things that really, when you churn more in my environment, makes it more difficult. But in the end, those things have to happen in order for us to start delivering. Because if they don't, then we're going to have the old 18-month deliveries of irrelevant products. Yeah. No, I think we have the same, everybody has the same goals in mind. You know, we want a robust solution that is easy to use and not firefighting in our particular roles every day. So we're really looking at you know, it's an easy user customer, easy user experience and an easy experience for the support teams and networks. So let's talk about, I want to go to the fun part, go automation. On. Let's go right down the comms framework, okay? We did the boring, but most important thing is culture because it has to change, right? And then we just talk about automation, which is unfortunately, that's where everybody goes first is to automation. Because vendors are telling you they've got it in a box. Well, I, I'd argue that we don't, cool. go, we don't go there first. We start with that discovery and coaching. Right. But most organizations want to say, okay, give me a tool set. Because it shows like you're doing something, right? And the vendors will tell you that. If you could just get your tools right, you'll be able to deliver something in DevOps, which really is not the case at all. But automation is, you know, it's the cool stuff. It's the bells and whistles, right? So one of the interesting things is continuous integration. Not that it's so rocket science or anything, but 
What's amazing is that people have not defined what continuous integration really is. Just as with culture or with DevOps overall, continuous integration hasn't been defined and understood. In particular situations, just recently, was that you looked at what the contract said was, I want continuous integration on this contract. And this contractor should deliver that, provide that. And so they defined what continuous integration was. In my mind, it fell way short to actually be able to support really the delivery aspect as well as just the feedback loop that you need from your users, mm-hmm. right? So defining that was really key. But do you want that definition in a contract or should that be in a supporting framework as an inherent property of that framework? That would be great. You could bring the framework and say, I'll provide the scaffolding. In fact, I think that's the way to really do it. Don't go to the golden set of tools saying, these are the tools we shall use and that's how you're going to go ahead and provide it. Put the pipelines together, the scaffolding together and Mm -hmm. allow the development team with some, you know, you've got to have some set of control over the tools. You don't want them just going willy-nilly. But having those that scaffolding together and be able to have, you know, plug-in points that you can actually put your tools in, that's what I think government should supply or at least the contractor or have a contractor supply that. That way we know how you're going to deliver it, what kind of quality I can expect out of it, and it still supports some reasonable set of tools. Yeah, no, I think it's a valid argument, but I think equally it's as valid as having an outcomes-based specification, right? Where these are the goals that we want you as a contractor to achieve. These are the deliverables in terms of all the artifacts or uh, checkpoints in a CICD pipeline that we expect. Absolutely. And, and be agnostic to the actual tool set, the actual skills and whatnot. Oh, yeah, if, if you don't specify what you want in the end, which absolutely is not done. Right. Many times it's like, well, I did CI. What was that? Well, I defined it as I can compile. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Well, that doesn't seem that, well, that's the way I defined it. Yeah. And that's how it's set. Yeah. It's got to have something where you've got at least some product that is provided out of each one of these pipelines for velocity on my deployment pipeline, for my integration pipeline. I've got to have something that's continually built at every time I change, and it should have a regression testing against it to ensure that I didn't break it. Right, absolutely. So I think we're talking about the same thing, ultimately. Yeah. It's, um... I just think that it should be spelled out. And in today's world, if I can go to a cloud service provider, I should be able to build that with infrastructure as code and be able to give you a set of code that builds it out and point it at a provider. Mm-hmm. So there's no excuse about you know, in the old days, you went and begged for hardware, you begged for rack space, you begged for everything, and then finance cut it down in half, and then yeah. you try to fit it all yeah. into it. Yeah, well, I, I think that the ideal situation may be something that, you know, we can borrow from ITSM in terms of the service catalog culture that they have in IT services and delivery. And, you know, linked to those catalog items, you have all of the deliverables and the uh, service level and operational level agreements in place. You apply those principles to CI, then when you go to an AWS and Azure and a Google or X, you're buying a catalog item that includes all of those things that you've just talked about. That's interesting. So KPIs are really important because of the obvious things. We've got to be able to measure ourselves. We've got to establish baselines, then we've got to understand where we're trending. But they have the same 
people treat them the same way they seem to treat SLAs. Nobody wants to commit to that core KPIs. You've got to be able, that's got to be set in contract. Because if you don't, then people are going to make up their own KPIs. And this is an opportunity for pre-established pipelines that say, yeah, we have KPIs, but also we can gather data to feed the KPIs. Sounds obvious, mm-hmm. but doesn't seem it's ever done. No, it's, um, I do see that as a problem with contracting. That you know, When you do see KPIs in contracts, they are not necessarily the most meaningful KPIs. And you know, one of the issues, I guess, is KPIs can change over time as well. So do you really want to dictate all the KPIs up front? I think it's sensible to have an initial set of KPIs, which mm-hmm. is your baseline kind of performance a core set, measure, right? right? Yeah. You know, you're not going to get paid if you don't hit these. I'd love to see some incremental improvement in KPIs built into contracting somehow so it holds us accountable and gives us full ownership of the problem. And we're delivering to a KPI is so much better as a contractor than delivering to a prescription that the government has given the contracting community. It does it very effectively. Right, right. You know, follow process A, B, and C to get to D. Let's just all aim at D and allow us to take ownership of addressing how we get there using our tools that we're comfortable with, using our unique process sometimes that may be the better methodology to deliver D because it's something we've brought in from industry that the government has just not been able to adopt for whatever reason. So one of the problems is that we put up these processes, we check the box, and then we never measure and lean out those processes, or we rarely do. And it's not spelled out that we should, or that someone should be in charge or overseeing or have oversight into how well we're doing. So one of the things that we've done at a recent customer is provide a transparency into that, try some visibility into those pipelines through a dashboard. Mm-hmm. Right. And that dashboard isn't a, in the traditional APM kind of thing. It's actually on how we're building it and how we're delivering it, mm-hmm. which is strange. It just seems a dearth of tools to do that. And that's really the thing I'd want to do. If I was a product owner, a product manager, I know I had more insight because I was digging into the code and I knew how things were done. But to have that oversight on a product and the projects that underlie that product would be very, very helpful. In fact, essential. Yeah, absolutely agree 100%. That gives you the basis to iteratively improve, right? Because you're seeing those figures on a daily basis and you can increase the performance measure over time to address a particular focus area that you're interested in. So it's part of continuous improvement process in the ITSM world, but it's not yet matured in the CICD DevOps world. Yeah, I don't think it's appreciated. In fact, because I don't think that those metrics have been codified, they haven't been standard, they're just kind of getting out there now. What we should be doing for, and nobody wants to be caught saying you should do so many commits a day, but there's a reasonable commit cadence you should provide, right? right. My build right. should be at a certain fail fast duration yeah, it, and success rate, industry, right? Industry proven velocities that right. are, are a baseline. Right. Uh, I think it's a little trickier when you start to look at you know help desk ticket or performance resolution metrics because you really need to drill into and understand the problem. But then it becomes a trend analysis type activity that needs to take place to build improvements into the software at a, the architectural level, perhaps. Yeah, and 
Also, I mean, so we're talking about, I think, two different things. On application performance, that's great. So we want to make sure that we do that. And we're very good at doing this. Lots of tools. I just want to make sure that we focus on, on how CI. we build it right. and how we deliver it and how well we're doing it. Just talking with somebody recently, they're like, we are very, very mature in doing our testing and our CI. When it was clear, not only was that only on one part of the code base, but why were you even saying that? How could you measure yourself against what? Hmm. And that's really what it comes in with, well, you talked about a maturity model. You have a maturity model that you're using at the VA for Agile? Is that what you're doing? We're certainly assessing the programs against a maturity framework that we have in place, absolutely. Okay, so we did... Um, you know, whether the VA's adopted that maturity framework, I can't say. We certainly use one internally to assess... Uh, right, so assess where you're yeah. at, where you're going, at what level you're at, right? Right. To understand right. that at least you're moving in the right direction, mm -hmm. which is the same thing we did recently with a DevOps maturity model. Understand where you're at, what the attributes, characteristics of an organization are at different levels in the maturity model, which is really key. Hard to get them to adapt it and accept it after the fact, especially because what they find is they're not sitting too high in that maturity model. And so just accepting that low baseline is a difficult thing to do. Right. Things like defining the scope of DevOps within the organization, I think is important as well as defining DevOps. Because, you know, I've seen DevOps being declared a success, but there is nothing hitting a production environment. You're right. right. It's so, amazing. We're doing DevOps. Oh, good. Check the box. So what does a user have? We're in 15 releases. Well, what's a release? Oh, release is when I'm done with this code right here. But it's never in the user's hand. No. So it comes back to mm -hmm. defining DevOps, defining a reference model that says a release isn't that. A release is... When I put it in production and the user has it and they can actually gain value from it, right? Right. Otherwise, it's no different than using an IDA that's pushing software code out into a test environment. Yeah. My users don't get that excited about that. So let's get back to Andrew Underhill. What are your big initiatives you have planned for the CTO? Well, I think we've, we've, we've touched on it already. It's really the building the design patterns that we have as an organization being developed in particular areas, building that ecosystem out so that we have a reference model or service catalog. doesn't really matter what we call it, but it's a suite of design patterns that can be readily applied to projects. And those design patterns can obviously be linked to real-world templates and quick start applications and frameworks that can be provisioned on demand. So it's really pushing the organization towards an automating some of the great things that we're doing internally to allow our programs to operate more effectively in the government space, you know, on the ground. I like all that. So is infrastructure as code one of my favorite subjects and part of that? Well, of course it is part of that, right? If you have a great pattern for a particular type of application in one of the cloud service providers out there, we want any of our teams to be able to pick up that templated approach, which is behind the design pattern, and spin up an environment and start working with it immediately. And that involves a lot of infrastructure as code, obviously. All right, so I'm going to pull on that thread a little bit. So where is infrastructure as code used? How is it being used 
in the agencies you've been, you mean, looking and talking with? Well, this comes back to scope of DevOps, right? Mm. You know, it's being used quite extensively on individual projects to help the development team get that release software to a pre-production environment very quickly. There are various tools being used in order to allow that to happen. But the real challenge is making that leap from the pre-production to production environments. Because? Uh, it's you know primarily, in my mind, due to organizational constraints. You know, these are large organizations. Yeah. You know, any large organization is very difficult to steer that ship very quickly. But the seed is agile. We've done that in agencies at the team-based level, and then it's safe, which is scaling that agile approach out. So the organization becomes much more receptive to us injecting some further frameworks around integrating teams because they are hopefully by that stage working within a safe environment with the product mindset and working together more effectively on the development and operations side of the house. So it's less of a leap to jump from doing DevOps on the software development and the product development house. It's less of a leap for them to change than it is for the operations teams that are increasingly nervous about the fact that IT is moving to the cloud. Their roles are, are changing. changing significantly. That's an understatement. Right. Because I'll just throw a shameless plug in there. So I wrote an article on that, and the life of ops is going to be like many people have changed in industry, right? And they can either be the Luddites and smash the mills, or they can accept the fact that things are going to change, right? I don't need you to pull wire anymore. I don't need you to make sure the HVAC is there. I don't even need you to make sure the power's there. But I do need you to help me understand early on in the development and ideation process and even testing, right? Those areas need your input because ultimately you're going to have a lead role in the care and feeding of that and as we go through iterations, right? Uh -huh. So that's where I really need you. But I think there's a real, just like you said, people do what they've always done because it makes them feel good. They've been successful. And why shouldn't they keep doing it, right? right? But the world's changing. That's one of the biggest challenges is getting people. And that's why I think Bill James's message is so important. It's really aimed at ops, security, you need to come on and join the big team and get on with the product and help us get in there. But I don't think it's as simple as I just said, though, because we need to have the understanding that ops is paid still in a silo to keep those things going, right? We still don't have that idea that this team actually owns that, right? We still have operations owning and is responsible for it. So if we can shift those somehow to get to the point where a product owns a swim lane into production, yeah. which is a big shift, I think that's where they feel a lot better because they're not the guy getting dumped on all the time. Yeah, I absolutely agree. You still have a lot of operational responsibility in the DevOps world that does not really change from on-premise IT to off-premise IT. No, I don't you, think you, it's, you, it's about cloud still, or anything, right? Right. The actual location of the equipment doesn't matter a lot no. of the time. But cloud does change the equation for ops in that what I can really do, don't worry about that stuff anymore. What I've seen is organizations have moved the glass house into the cloud mm -hmm. and they've just stymied 
the ability and the agility of the cloud and kind of neutered it. So you can't use it in the way it should be. We can't do either create and provision resources like we should. Having test environments that are actually stood up yeah. and then go away, that's amazing, powerful. Yeah, absolutely. But one of the things we do is go back to that training and education part that's early on in the life cycle of transformation. That you're doing with right. the it's, VA. Right. It's educating those people that are responsible for moving the glass house, as you described it, mm. and your approach. You don't need to develop a whole auditing and compliance environment necessarily if you can link to the auditing and compliance environment that's in the cloud already, utilize some of the data and whatnot. Right. So that's why I think this is like the Bill James uh, cheerleading section over here, but that message that he does is really, really important because it starts yeah. building the message overall down the road for us. He's going to have to continually do that and build out that message and making early and often, but it's really, really important. Mm -hmm. And to your point, the Bill James and the Charles Worthington and the Drew Michelgaard message is being heard loud and clear across the VA and the federal space as a whole. They've been very successful with some high-profile projects, and it's always good to start off with some early successes. Yes. And there's a groundswell movement now towards introducing DevOps. People are listening and receptive to change. And I think that's the biggest change I've seen over the last three or four years. Some of the questioning over change has dissipated somewhat. It's so, you know, we're IT operations, we don't do agile, that's for software. You know, right. that, that has stopped being repeated as often as I used to hear it. <laughs> I think what happened was DevOps came in poorly defined, wearing expectations, and then it was like, all right, let's try it again. It seems to be like we're on the second phase, as you were saying. We're like, okay, here's what I really meant, and here's what I really expect from you guys. Right, yeah. You know, it's one of the old references I heard. Well, DevOps, it's the, the cowboys are back. You, know, you allow a software developer to, we, to we build We thought you had you all corralled. Right, right. <laughs> uh, no, it's not that. It's just about DevOps is about, you, know, you mentioned the communities, the calm thing. The C for calm is communication or collaboration so it's culture and structure and organization right and then that's it's bringing people together to meet the goals that have been set and when infrastructure operations and software product development or commercial product entities are brought into the federal space if we work together, we can still hit all of the audit requirements and security compliance requirements and usability requirements, provide a robust ecosystem where those goals are being hit. It's not them and us anymore with product development and IT operations. It is one now. Well, I've got a whole other show dedicated to security. Because <laughs> it is a challenge. I mean... Security is like the network guys, right? Nobody calls up the network guys and goes, I just want to let you know, your network is really humming. They only call you up when it's not working. Mm -hmm. They only get called up and notified is when somebody hacks them. And they have a tough job. But again, the security people, the security function needs to get early off. Pull it to the left, pull it to the left, pull it to the left. Sending my car down to the end right before it goes out onto the lot and I find out I don't have a left wheel. That's not yeah. good. Right. 
and it's killing the velocity in a lot of places. Yeah. You know, and if security is baked in and they really are working together, you've got those automation scripts baked and validated by the security teams and utilized by the software development. It's got to be defined. Yes. And if you don't define that, hey, you know what? I don't want you scanning your container right before it goes out the door. I want you to do it over there and have immutable objects Mm -hmm. that go down the pipeline. Don't rebuild. Some crazy practices go on when you don't define things, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Humans will come up with some amazing ways to mess things up. All right. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. Appreciate it. Appreciate your valuable time and sharing what you're doing as a CTO and how government CIO is helping transforming federal IT. Yeah. Thank you, Bill. It's been great. The Agile Advocate is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. The Agile Advocate is produced by Amy Kluber. It is hosted by Bill Drew. Edited by Resonate Recordings. Theme music provided by Big Hoax. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact Joe O'Neill at J-O-N-E-I-L-L at governmentcio.com.